be morally okay, then then that's what they say is okay. And bottom line, morals in our culture generally are driven, not by something like the scriptures, but generally driven by opinion. Wherever the heart, whatever the heart desires. There's a gentleman in the UK by the name of Pastor Steve Chalk. Steve Chalk would call himself an evangelical, but he does not believe in the inerrancy of scripture. Okay? Uh, okay, okay. I'm, I'm not saying that that's going to be a requirement for heaven, but he would venture, he would go so far as to say there are various things that the authors of Scripture, they didn't get the, just the facts wrong, the whole story's wrong. So he would embrace evolution. He would say that consequently Adam and Eve is just a myth, and by myth, he means it's, it's kind of like a fable. You know what a fable is? A fable is not something you take seriously. Of course, you never ask the question that it historically happened. You want to know what the moral of the story is. And so Adam and Eve, the moral of the story for him is that man, not that man sinned, but basically that man is in this process of educating himself and getting better. Man doesn't have a sin problem. He rejects the concept of original sin. Now, I, I'm not just choosing this man because I just want to get my frustrations out because I've just had a bad week. I'm sharing with you because he's one of the most well-known evangelical Christians in the UK. What he teaches is all over the internet, and so many, a large percentage of the people in what Americans would call the church today embrace similar theology as he does. So it goes on, and he would say that Okay, not only is Adam and Eve uh, more of a fable or like a parable that Jesus told, I mean, none of Jesus' parables happened historically, but you get the point of them. So Adam and Eve is more like a parable. There was a whole lot of problems with that perspective. But he goes on and he would say that consequently the Bible, that, that there is an issue with just the whole idea of man needing to be saved. And he struggles with this idea that Jesus would be, he would come out of heaven and he would do so to save mankind. Save, save mankind really from what? Now here's a quote that Steve Chalk gave. God is not a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, an, a Hindu, a Buddhist, or a Sikh. God is the author and lover of humanity, regardless of our religion or belief, our race, age, sex, sexual orientation, marriage status, gender, ethnicity, abilities, and disabilities. Now, I am not going to disagree with the fact that God is not a Christian. God is not a Christian, but let me just tell you this, that God says that this book right here is the only inspired word of God, that Jesus truly is the only Son of God, and consequently, for us to reject Jesus is to reject God. Now, I didn't make that up. Read the book of First John and you'll discover this. Whoever rejects the Son rejects the Father as well. So, in our day, there is this broken standard of what truth is. Now from that, then Steve Chalk goes on to say, according to his understanding of the Bible, which of course is the right way to understand it, and he says that you know, if you just give the Bible serious study, you'll come to these conclusions. Apparently, us conservatives, we just don't get the Bible. But what he would say is that homosexuality is completely legitimate. Romans 1, you're, you, you conservatives, you miss understanding it. Abortion obviously is okay, come on, rights of a woman. And he goes on and on, and he rewrites the morality of the Bible for one reason and one reason only. Let me tell you, let me, to explain this, let me give you an illustration. I hold in my hand a yardstick. This yardstick is exactly 36 inches or 3 feet. I trust this to the degree where if I needed to measure something and it had to be exactly 36 inches, I would use this. But this then would represent the Word of God. The Word of God is not just right 
here and there, the Word of God is completely right. There are some who take the Word of God, and this, by the way, is exactly 36 inches. It truly is. Tell you what, hello, can you stand up? I'm going to measure to see how tall you are, okay? And this is my measuring, okay? And by the way, so you see, okay? But I'm telling you that this wire is exactly 36 inches long, but it has been twisted and bent. I want to see how tall you are. Hello? Okay, hang on. Okay, so far you're six feet right here, and I would venture you're just a little under nine feet tall. Okay, so if I'm measuring Halal with my newfound measuring stick, you're just under, you're almost as tall as Goliath. All right? No slaves are allowed in here, by the way. So, okay, that, that, that's, that's fine. I, how many of you believe that he is just shy of nine feet? <laughs> Okay, all right, his brother thinks so. That's interesting. <laughs> I have in my hand a stick that at one time was exactly 36 inches long, but as you can see, it, it, somehow or other it got broken. Hello, could you stand up here just one more, one more time here? I'm going to measure you again. Okay, here we go. Here we go. So, okay, here, right there. I'm measuring you with this. Uh, you know what, you're not quite, no, you're only, uh, let's see, six plus half of, so seven and a half feet. You're closer to seven and a half feet according to this. All right? How many of you believe that Hillel is about seven and a half feet tall? Raise your hand. Okay. Some of you jokesters say, yes, Pamela, thank you. <laughs> the, the truth is, Hillel, stand up one more time. All of these... This one is broken. This one is bent and twisted. I think you're following the analogy at this point. Our problem is that when we don't use a correct measuring stick, we're not going to be able to know what the measurement of anything is, what the measurement of any truth is. This is what we do throughout our lifetime, guys. We listen to what's on TV. We read the books. We're trying to find out what is truth. This is the very question it was a rhetorical question that Pilate asked Jesus when Jesus was on trial. What is truth? He said it rather facetiously as if to say, no one can really know what truth is. However, Jesus had just said to his disciples who would believe him, what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus gave us a measuring stick and it was exactly 36 inches. So I want to measure you, Hillel, with this new one. And we're going to find out really how tall you are. Okay? If you could you remove your head. There we go. I, I, I just don't want to cheat. Okay, you are over six feet. You're about six two. Now, that's a rough measurement. We could do it really exactly. You know, where I, how many of you guys have like pencils and pen markings on thresholds of your doors? Okay, yes, we used to. I I painted over ours, but anyway, I'm not sure that was I was supposed to do that. But uh, anyway, some of us we keep them there for posterity's sake, and that's the growth of our children. Oh, it's so precious. Uh, my wife probably took a snapshot of it before I painted over it. But the truth is, this is exactly. 36 inches. The Word of God, not broken, not twisted, tells us exactly what truth is. If we use any other measurement, this is the best that we will do. You can never measure anything exactly with something that's bent and twisted or broken. Yet Steve Chalk and many of them, he's just an example, in our day, in our culture, weigh truth based on their opinion. See, that's your truth, or that's my truth, is how they put it. And for them, truth is relative. Now, I'm sorry, this is exactly 36 inches. It truly is. It's not 35 and a half, and it's not 36 and a half. It is 36 inches. As we go through 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to the end of the chapter, I want us to see that Paul is trying to say the standard of, this is the standard of the Word of God. We're going to come across a phrase that all Scripture is God-breathed. And that's perhaps the most literal way to translate that, rather than all Scripture is inspired of God. 
All scripture is God-breathed. Now, I'm going to get there in just a little bit, but I want you to follow me right now as I read. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> right before I read that, I, I do want to bring it to your attention that the voice of culture today asks the very same question that Satan asked in the garden, and that is, did God really say? Did, did God really say? Or maybe... He said one of these. Second Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose. Actually, in the Greek, we could put my in front of each of those. But it's only found in, in the beginning of the very first one, teaching. So my teaching, way of life, purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul gives that to Timothy as a promise. If you're truly seeking to be godly, you will be persecuted, he says. While evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Yes, church, according to the Bible, according to this, not this, but this, Mankind is in need of salvation. May you rise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the man of God, woman of God as well, he's saying here, so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Is God's word, the Bible, really trustworthy, church? Because that's really what's at stake that I'm talking about. Which of these measuring sticks do we use? Is God's word, the Bible, is it really trustworthy? Can I truly measure all truth by it? If it is, what does that mean for us? And really, at the heart of all of this is, can the word of God change me? Can it change you? When Paul says he's talking about my teaching, see, he's already gone over that. If you were to look back at chapter 2, verses 14, to the end of the chapter, verse 26, that's what he's talking about. He's focusing on teaching. And he actually got into two men who were propagating uh, heresy, saying that the resurrection had already taken place. Hymenaeus and Philetus. And he chose them. Actually, we learned in the very first book of First Timothy that, that uh, Hymenaeus had actually already been excommunicated or disfellowshipped. His flesh was turned over to Satan. And that's how it reads in First Timothy chapter 1. So that the devil would teach him not to blaspheme. And that's basically what disfellowshipping does. Removing of God's blessing and, and grace and being a part of the church and opening that person up to be, to, if you're gonna choose to sin, then you're gonna bear it. You're gonna bear the consequences. So that is basically what Paul has done. And yet Hymenaeus continues to propagate his falsehoods, his errors, drawing people after him and away from the teaching of the Word of God. He's using a broken yardstick rather than a genuine 36-inch yardstick. So Paul is focusing on teaching, and not just what is truth, but he says, when people oppose you, because when you teach truth, you will find that people will oppose you. How do you respond to them? You respond to them graciously. You point it out. This is error. We, church, we never back down from confessing what is true. In our day, though, 
Many of us, we tend to backpedal and, you know what, you know, that's just not, I'm not going to go there. And, and we're afraid to defend the truth. On the other hand, we get so zealous, and, and I love being zealous, but he says, what good, Proverbs says, what good is zeal without knowledge? So zeal, yes, knowledge, here's the knowledge. When someone opposes you, gently instruct. That's what he tells us, verse 25, gently instruct them. Your goal is not to win an argument. Your desire is to win a heart. And if you put that person on the defensive by attacking them, what happens? People who are married, when you feel attacked in your marriage, what do you do? Show me your heel, okay? Yeah, you dig your heels into the ground and you refuse to budge. There's just something rises up in you, an anger. A gentle anger, a gentle answer, though, turns away wrath, we learned. You know what? Wait a second. You know, bring truth to the forefront. But we're gracious. And there are times, and we, we, we learned of at least one, there's several, but there are times in which God's people, like Paul to Elymas, he just said, look, and he called him a spawn of Satan. And he said, everything that you do. And he had to do this because he was constantly leading Sergius Paulus astray with all of his arguments and words. And, and Paul says, no. And God brought judgment at that moment. And Elymas was struck with blindness. And Sergius Paulus gave his heart to Christ. And it says, not because of the miracle that he saw, at least what Luke tells us, because of he was so convinced that what Paul was saying was true. This is true about Jesus. Cross, res I get it, yes. So, generally speaking, church, we are called to speak gently, graciously, that God might touch their heart and lead them to repentance. So that's teaching. Then he goes on and he says here, my teaching and my way of life. Verses 1 through 9, we Paul focused more on the way of life. You want a list of things that characterize our culture today, the end times? We learned that the end times are not in the future. The end times are right now. The end times are right now and have been that way since Pentecost. From Pentecost to the second coming, those are the end times. Those are the last days. We're in the last days. And I'm just going to suggest that, those, that these characteristics these in verses 1 through 5, they describe our generation and not just Paul's generation. And this is the way of life. See, what you believe, church, impacts the way you live. What you believe is a big deal because it will direct you. It will lead you. And if you're believing junk, then your life is going to soon look like junk. So, he then goes on and he says that Timothy, you know about not just my teaching and my way of life, but you also know my purpose. And I want to ask you this question. My friend, do you know what your purpose in life is? What is your purpose? Why are you here? Why did God create you? Why did God even rescue you? I mean, I get it, because you believed in Jesus Christ, but what is God's purpose for your life? That should be your purpose. Whatever God's purpose is for Mike Curtis, that needs to be my purpose. That needs to be your purpose. What God desires for you, and I'm going to tell you this right now, that it is not about being famous and making a bunch of money, because all of that stuff will burn. It's just going to burn. It's one hand stubble. God calls us to build with gold, silver, and precious stones. What are you building? What are you giving your life to? God challenges us. From the word of God, we're changed. And for the rest of our lives, constantly, of course, being fed the word, for the rest of our lives, we are seeking to impact people because they are eternal. That, is, that needs to be our consuming purpose. Not just because Paul is an apostle and, okay, we get it, so of course he's going to be all about preaching the word and you know, giving his life for Jesus and 
being persecuted for truth. And Timothy, okay, yeah, he's his servant. He's working with Paul. He's now left at Ephesus. We're not exactly sure where Paul, Timothy is right now. He could still be in Ephesus. We don't know for sure. But he, it, there's persecution all around. It's around 66, 67 AD. Nero is still on the throne as emperor. And he is like, look, or like a base and he's ready to kill any Christian and persecute them for Paul, he's in prison. We do know that shortly after he penned this letter, he did die. He was beheaded, persecuted. He was a martyr for the kingdom of God, for truth. So Paul's purpose in living fully for God's purpose, for those things that are eternal, see, that's what needs to be our purpose. So driven was he by this purpose, you saw it in his faith, in his patience. See, patience with people who are, they're, they're just not getting it. Maybe some of them are younger Christians and they're, they're just not getting it. And they keep stumbling back into sin and, and, and Paul says, you know, come on, let me help you. And he stands by their side and he nurtures them as a father would his son, as a mother would to the baby nursing at her breast. This is what 1 Timothy, we were like a nursing mother to you and like a father to you, he tells the Thessalonians. And so Paul is, is patient with them. He's filled with love for the people that he's ministering to. This is his life. This is his way of life. Rooted in the word of God, the teaching, and then impacting the way he lives. Endurance. He does not give up. Church, I'm going to tell you right now that if you live your life 60 years, and after 60 years you choose to give up, wow. I have known couples who were married for like 30, 40 years, and they get a divorce. And it's like, oh my goodness. You're like coming down the home stretch and you give up? Wow. And my heart just goes out to them. My heart goes out to those people who have, who for years have been following the Lord and then life just gets hard. Church, it does. Anyone who tells you anything other, other than that is selling you something. Be real. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. You're, you're going to endure hardship. We've been going through the book of James. But we, because we understand our purpose and God's in control, we consider it all joy when we face trials of many kinds. And that's our attitude, that's our mindset. So Paul, he is, he's enduring, and he's going through persecutions and sufferings, and he even reminds Timothy, you know what, when I was in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, you remember the persecutions that I went through, and the reason why he, he <coughs> excuse me, talks about those three cities is because Timothy was born and raised in that region. Timothy grew up in Lystra with a godly mother, godly grandmother, teaching him the scriptures since he was an infant. Very possibly when Paul was passing through the first time, his first missionary journey, that's when Timothy gave his heart to Christ. We don't know for sure, but we would venture to say it was under Paul's, mission, uh, Paul's ministry because he calls Timothy a son in the faith. And, and so there's this awesome relationship, and he says to Timothy, you remember what I went through. Church, you know what's so easy is for us to take this stick and just say, you know, wherever I don't like it, that's where I'm going to break it. Wherever I don't like it, that's where I'm, I'm, I'm going to twist it and make it say what I think it should say. But here's what you're going to discover. With anyone that twists scripture, it will not line up with other scriptures. And here, personally, here's what I find many times. I hear what you're saying, but what about this passage? Oh, don't get me off track. No, 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 no. I, I'm actually trying to get you back on track. We're trying to look at what the Word of God, and the Word of God, there's a sense of continuity in the Scriptures. That means it doesn't say one thing over here and contradict itself over here. There's this sense of uniformity, continuity. There's this sense of it's not going to contradict itself. Here's what you're going to find. When someone bends and twists Scripture, you will find that it does not line up with many other Scriptures. 
They might be able to force a, uh, an interpretation on a particular verse, but it's going to break down somewhere else. It will. Amen. And so we just need to be wise. And Paul says, you know what? I lived with this standard. And guess what? Because I chose to not break it or bend it, I got persecuted for it. Faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Not Mithra. Not Dionysus. No other gods. Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, the one true God, the creator of all things. No one comes to him except through Jesus Christ. And Paul stood firm on this. And he said, God sent his son because there's a sickness in this world that's called sin. And that sin offends a holy God that created us for a purpose. And we chose in our rebellion to go in a different direction. Say, talk to the hand. Whatever, whatever, regardless of what you say, I've, I know what I want in life, and we did it our way. There's a sickness called sin, and it's a part of all of us. We're enslaved to it, and we are in great need of salvation. Contrary to what Steve Chalk says, sin is a serious issue. The world is not getting better and better. The world is sick has always been sick and is still to this day in amazingly desperate need of salvation, of God's grace, of their deadness, that sin being forgiven that caused it, them coming alive. This is what they need. And so Paul's been persecuted. But you know what? Those who bend and twist the truth or break it, they're not going to get persecuted. Because, hey, their goal is to just say things that you like. Their goal is, I'm just going to agree with the majority. Why be persecuted? So they're not going to be persecuted. Actually, it says that they go from worse, from, from bad to worse, and deceiving and being deceived. These imposters are deceivers. You know, if Scripture did teach that human, humankind is merely on this trajectory of personal growth and we're just going to get better and better. And if, if we just apply ourselves, then we'll become more moral people. Not exactly sure, though, what morals are because for most of the people out there, they're, they're using the broken yardstick. Not quite sure what, what's right and what's wrong, except what's our opinion. But you know what? We're going to get better and better. The issue is not sin. Jesus didn't come to die on a cross for my sin. He came to die on a cross so that he would help us by that example to be more selfless, and love, whatever that, however we define that, by the way. And that's what Jesus came for. So that I can get better and better. It's not for the forgiveness of my sins. Stephen Chalk even says that that, 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 um, that downplays the power of the cross. Forgiveness does. I mean, that is the gospel on its head. To say that. That is the very purpose why Jesus came. Wow. He says that Timothy, in, in view of my way of life and how I'm living and how these other people are living that I've talked to you about earlier and they're only going from bad to worse. You, however, when you looked at my life, what did you see? You saw these various character qualities. You received the truth from infancy. You were taught the scriptures. Follow them. You were taught, follow that. Follow the teaching about Jesus. Follow him. And then he comes to this passage that is such a profound passage. All scripture is God-breathed. What is the purpose then? What is the power of Scripture? Because he gets into this. And before I answer that question, we, we need to understand what does this mean that all Scripture is God-breathed? Because I'm telling you, there are so many voices out there that are using broken measuring sticks or bent and twisted ones, and they think they are truly the measurement of truth. 
What does it mean that all scripture is God-breathed? The word that's used there for scripture is the writings. The writings. And that is just a name that the Jews gave to the Bible. At that time, it was just the Old Testament. By the time Paul is writing 2 Timothy, perhaps all four Gospels have been written by that point. John may have been written later, but very possibly even John was written before 70 AD. All of Paul's letters were written and were starting to be circulated. Peter died very close to the time that Paul did, and in 2 Peter, he says, there are people who are twisting what Paul says as they do the rest of the writings, the scriptures. So by this time, about the time Peter wrote Second Peter. Peter himself recognizes that what Paul has been writing is scripture. So we're not just talking about the Old Testament. We're talking about the vast majority of what we call the New Testament. All scripture. That doesn't mean portions that you like. It means every word that proceeds from the mouth of God himself is what you should choose to live by. Not the parts that you really like. It says here in chapter 4, he says, in verse 3, he says, Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Church, truth is far too valuable to compromise with. It is far too valuable for us to just look at the Bible and say, no, no, I don't like that. You know what? I think there's an error here. And so what most people do is they just begin like like a, a smorgasbord. They pick and choose what they want. That's what gets on their platter. Anything else like okra? You know, guys, there there just might be some okra in this Bible. But for most of us, boiled okra. Okay, that's, yeah, not going to pass on that. And and so we treat the Bible like a smorgasbord, like it's a pick-and-choose type of thing. And Scripture says, no, 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 no. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that's what we live by. Actually, if you were to look at Matthew in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount... He says it this way in chapter 5. So very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, anyone, let me back up, sorry. I tell you the truth, even heaven and earth, well, until, I'll get this right, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. You see, if there's errors in the Bible, that most certainly would fail. Errors fail. But this text just told me that nothing will. Nothing. Every single letter and little yod and such is is important. And then he goes on to say, anyone, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. As I say again, we want to be careful when we start pointing the fingers and saying, yeah, no, that person's not saved and that person's not saved. We want to be careful. The Lord knows those who are his. What we need to be firm on is what is truth. And God will decide whether Steve Chalk goes to heaven or not, not me. But Steve Chalk, at every turn, as the years go by, he's denying this truth and this truth, and it's scary. And he impacts a lot of people. That's our culture that we live in today, church. I know that he's over in the UK, but everything between the UK and America, there's just so much connection, so much cause and effect. It's scary. It truly is. All scripture is God-breathed. So every word is... Every letter, every yod is as well. And he says that it is God-breathed. Now, I realize that the King James and other translations say that it is inspired of God. The Greek word here, thea, thea, p, 
neustos means God breathed, literally. God breathed. Now, if to spire means to either inhale or exhale, it's your breath, okay? For something to inspire means to have life in it. To expire means that there's no more life in it. Or if you think there's life in it and you try it from the refrigerator, you better be careful, okay? It's expired, all right? How many of you ever gotten sick from eating something that has been expired, okay? The truth, though, is that inspired basically means that God has breathed life into it. And that's probably not the best way to understand Scripture, that God didn't breathe life into Scripture, but God breathed Scripture, okay? It was his very breath and his words full of life. Not just some here and there, all of it full of life. And he says that the Scriptures will do four things. Well, five, if you include the verse just before it, it will give you wisdom unto salvation. That's basic. Without salvation, uh, we are still dead. We do not have an understanding, a proper understanding of Scripture. We might be able to wrestle with it intellectually, but Scripture, truth, is more than just mentally discerned. It must be spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And the unspiritual man, that is the man without the spirit of life in him, he cannot understand the word of God the way he needs to. And uh, apart from God's grace, church, we would still be without life, without the spirit. And so the spirit then has made us alive in Christ. We now have an understanding or he can help us obtain an understanding of God's scriptures, of God's word. And then four things. If scripture is profitable or useful, number one, for teaching. That is truth. This is truth. This is not. So he says, look, Timothy, use your yardstick. Now, when you use your yardstick and you begin to measure things, Understand that some things will not measure up. What do we do in that case? Now, when things don't measure up, we must show them the yardstick. Show me the yardstick. The Word of God will show us when we fall short. Now, the word here for rebuking literally means to expose or to convince by evidence. When, when, when God needs to bring conviction of what is truth, he's going to take the word of God, and as I'm reading it, or as I'm hearing a pastor, or someone preaching or teaching, or as I'm just reading the Bible and letting the Spirit minister to me, the word of God is placed next to me. Now, can I just say that the word of God inspires and encourages and builds up. It trains us. But he's right now focusing more on this idea of it will rebuke us. It will expose some of those things in our life that we don't like. Can I give you an example? When I was 14, I gave my heart to Christ. When I gave my heart to Christ, my brother, who had led me to Christ, encouraged me, Mike, start reading the Bible. If you can do it every day, do it. But start reading the Bible, and let the Word of God begin to minister to you. So I started doing that, and I did it a few days a week, and then I got better and better at it, you know, more consistent and such. And then about two years later, I would say it was about two years later, God began to show me something in my life. Because... I had, what God showed me was that there was a work that the devil had done in my life that I still needed to be transformed and healed of. When I was a young kid, uh, there was a lot of awkwardness about me. There was a lot of self-conceit. I used sports as my crutch to kind of prop myself up to say, see what a good guy I am? And people saw that. And they would tease me and make fun of me. And I would imagine most of us, as we were growing up, we were teased. 
And those, for me, those teasings went deep. So I just figured, I've got to prove myself to them too. And it just made the problem worse. We call these insecurities. I was a very insecure kid. And as I began to now grow in my faith, God began to show me some of these things. And it was ugly. About two years after I gave my heart to Christ, my clo- one of my closest friends, while he was driving me home from a Bible study, said, Mike, I need to talk to you about an issue in your life. And he began to point out pride. And I didn't get it at first. And he was gracious enough to give me about half a dozen examples. <laughs> and just one after the other. And, and I began to realize, wow, I was silent. I, I, I was grateful I did not get defensive, but it hurt. And as God's word began to speak to me, I knew, like right then, I knew that he was right. And I chose, you know what, I'm not going to fight this. And I just, I just began to say, okay, God, wow. How, how deep does this go? God answered that question just about a, a couple of months later. And my youth pastor said, Mike, let's go for a walk. So I was like, wow, is he going to give me like a new position in the youth group? I think I was like in 11th grade or whatever it was. I was in, I was in high school and, and he, he went, we went for a walk and he said, Mike, I know that your heart really is to just say things that help the kids in the group, but I don't think you realize that so much of what you say, it tends to put them down. You tend to say things that make yourself look good and big and it tends to make them feel small and so he kind of graciously walked me through how to live a life that was humble how to live a life in which my sense of value wasn't in sports or in anything else or anyone's opinion but it was solely rooted in God's love for me and I needed to take the truth of God's word and say this is what love is not what the world says but this is what love is this is what humility is this is what patience and forgiveness are and God had to just take me and strip me of so much I remember going through my 11th grade year and it felt so awkward because God was just pointing out so much and changing me. And I began to realize, wow, God, this is the power of the word. Amen. This is God's word showing me and he's speaking now through my friends. And I'm just saying, God, let your word teach me. Let it rebuke me. Let it correct me. The word correction here means to straighten up again or to align it's not good enough to know that you failed. It's now, okay, here's how you love. When you look at the life of Jesus, what an amazing example of how to love in the face of people persecuting you. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he did not revile in return, but he committed himself to him who was faithful to God the Father, it says. He didn't retaliate. That's okay, that was just their opinion. But Mike Curtis, he, he, I, I was just so concerned about others' opinions. So I'm going to encourage you. God's word is the standard of what is true. It will also train you in righteousness. It will encourage you. When, when, you, talk, when you think about righteousness, you go through and you start looking at, the, I love doing this, but looking at people's lives and how did they do it? How did Jesus do it? How did Paul do it? How did David do it? How did Daniel do it? I mean, Daniel, he was right up there in the top echelon of government. He was a statesman. He was a politician, church. Daniel was a politician. And I tell you what, though, he was like that, lined up. He allowed the word of God to change him. He did not bend. He did not compromise. And I I can remember reading through Daniel and saying, man, he is my hero. What a standard of righteousness in his day. And he could have died for it. 
God, that needs to be my attitude. No matter what, make me more like Jesus. And I remember when I was in, I had just given my heart to Christ and I, I was praying, God, please make me more like Jesus no matter what the cost is. And God answered that prayer. And, and it, it, it cost me a lot. God had to take sports out of my life. But I just want to tell you, church, when our passion is, as Paul says, remember, he says, my purpose. That it comes back to scriptures and how I'm living and now how am I, how, what, what is my purpose? What is God's plan? What is God's goal for my life? God's goal for your life is to look as much like Jesus as you can. For ladies, I'm not talking about the beard. You know what I mean. Looking like Jesus, loving like Jesus, being patient like Jesus. This is what we're called to. In the process, he says, you will be persecuted. Can I just tell you that if you're being persecuted for doing what's right, you just need to know that you're on the right track. I, I want to close with this. Isaiah 55. As God's word teaches and rebukes and corrects and trains, it has a goal in mind so that you will be equipped for every good work. Every good work. This is what, this is what Isaiah said 700, more than 700 years before Paul wrote. He said this, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. See, there's... God's word has a purpose and there's something that has happened so that now you go out in joy and in peace. It says the mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Listen to this. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the myrtle, excuse me, the pine tree and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown because it's his doing, church, as an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. What God is doing in our day is he is taking the truth and he is lifting it up and he's saying who is willing to follow the standard of truth who's willing to follow me who's willing to follow my son he is the only way truth and life there is no other way to the father but through Jesus Christ and he asks us to surrender our lives to him his the cross it did something church it wasn't just a nice example of doing something that was right and you know but really having convictions about truth Jesus gave himself his very life blood because apart from shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins and he did this so that God would have the right then to forgive people's sins Jesus had to shed his blood Jesus had to go to the cross but Jesus also had to rise from the dead so that when you believe in him that life that resurrection life of Jesus will now live in you at 14 this dead person here, Mike Curtis, separated from God because of my sin, became alive in Christ Jesus. That is the power of the word. God took this bougainvillea. That, by the way, bougainvillea is like, I, I hate bougainvilleas. Amen. They're a blessing and they're a curse. My wife loves them, but she only loves them because she doesn't have to trim them. I have to trim them. I go out there. I've got long. I've got my jeans on. I've got my long. I've got my you know long sleeves, or, or at least come down to here. My wife was gracious enough. She bought me their grill gloves, and so they go up to here. And then I put an extra pair of leather gloves on, and then I cut it. Okay, and somehow I still manage to come inside bloodied from those. 10 inch thorns or however long they are and, and I, I lose the battle actually no no you know what I, didn't I manage to trim it and I think I got only one blood streak on my arm I was so proud of myself rather than 50 I got like one I, I, must, I did something right but the truth is I, I, I really I, I look forward to the day in which we pull that thing up by the roots. No matter how much you cut it back, it still grows by the end of the season and it's huge. 
but see, that's a picture of Mike Curtis. And man, I hurt so many people because I was such a broken person. And Jesus had to take that brokenness and he had to heal it. And he gave me the myrtle instead, the pine tree, Isaiah says instead. And he did that for you too. That's the power of God's word. That when it comes in you, it's like life. The spirit of God just begins to transform you. If you're not getting into the word regularly, see, it is almost, it's next to impossible for you to be transformed. You can be saved, but you know what? I, I grew a lot that 11th grade year, but you know what? I have to say, in the last five years, I have grown so much in the Lord. I truly believe I have. And part of it was just stuff that we've gone through, me as a pastor and us as a church, and just stuff we've gone through, and God refining, and me just coming before God on my knees, saying, God, I am desperate for you to step in and to see God step in to situation after situation, because that's the God we serve. God's Word will transform your life. Be hungry for it. Live for it. Let it change you so that it changes the way you live. Okay? Church, can you stand with me? I want to close in prayer. And we're going to have communion, so if you want to grab the kids and bring them in, that would be great. But communion or the Lord's Supper is all about what Christ has done for us. You see over here the bread... And, well, we use grape juice, fruit of the vine, instead of wine. But the bread represents that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And that his body was broken for us on the cross. And thereby able to give us life. The wine, the, the grape juice, represents his blood. Jesus' blood was sacrificed on the cross so that we would have forgiveness of sins. It's not just that God washes away your sins, but he washes away your guilt. He washes away anything that the devil would accuse you of. It's gone. The shame, it's gone. If you're struggling with shame tonight, let this be a reminder. That shame that's from sin, that's completely washed away, completely dealt with. That's how much God loves you. Father, I just ask, as we're preparing our hearts for communion, would you minister to us through your word? Uh, Father, I ask that as we leave this place, as we go through those double doors, Father, may we be a people who are willing to embrace your word, who want to live according to your word, and be like that tree that's planted by streams of water that, that's no longer the briar bush, but the, the pine tree. Not the bougainvillea, but the myrtle, the, the great myrtle. Father, I just ask you, let your word transform us every day. And I just thank you for the beauty of your promises, for how much you love us, and how much your word can transform us. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.